your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Solom. All right, welcome to a Thursday of Lacrosse Talk PM. I am Rick Solom. Coming up on the show, kind of an exciting show as yesterday we did a bit of a look back, some history of World War II. We're going to kind of continue that today, although we're going to look further back in a way. And we're going to talk with Laura Godden. She is an archivist at UW Lacrosse's Murphy Library. And apparently we're going to learn here that the uh, Murphy Library is the like riverboat mecca or something. She was telling me before the show, but we're going to learn about this. So I bring, I'm bringing her on to talk about this War Eagle steamboat that came that was in Lacrosse. There's kind of a whole history about it. But the whole reason for bringing her on to talk about this is that the Lacrosse Center is trying to, is, is deciding on whether or not to put a War Eagle mural on the side of the building. So the the, the new renovated lacrosse center looks pretty awesome. Uh, now they want to, I thought maybe they'd put a mural of myself and Mike Hayes, Wisdom, we're right down, you know, right across the road. If there was a big picture of me and Mike Hayes on the side of the building, the Wisdom team, I don't know why they didn't, maybe they haven't decided on the War Eagle yet, but uh, maybe they'll do a, a hayes Solom combo on the other side of the building, but they're trying to decide whether or not to put a mural of the war Eagle on the side of the building. And I, I, I do want to know from Laura because she's kind of a history buff. Is there a better mural? Should we take a poll amongst those that live in the city about what mural to put on the side of the building? Uh, sometimes those polls go awful, uh, especially if we just leave it open, uh, a write-in vote, right? Um, but yeah, she, there's, it's pretty interesting history. The war Eagle, I believe, uh, sank just somewhere off of, the Riverside Park or something in the Mississippi River. We can learn that as well. But also, we're also talking a whole other topic. So we got two big topics today as we talked yesterday about the LST-325. If you guys haven't seen that ship yet, it's going to be in the Riverside Park uh, for the rest of the weekend and through Monday. Um, I spent a couple hours on that ship on Monday and then took a quick tour yesterday. Pretty, pretty cool to look at, a pretty great piece of history. And then uh, you know, feel free to, as you're walking in or off the ship, if you see a, a vet, maybe, maybe, you know, thank him for the service, ask him, they might have a story for you or just, you know, hover around and listen. Cause if you do anything like I did yesterday, my dad started talking to another Navy vet and they just started telling stories. Pretty great to hear those guys telling stories about their days in, in on the, on their, uh, respective ships. So, but anyway, I'm get, uh, getting an off track here. Uh, also coming up on the show is Grace Cook. She is a UW lacrosse graduate. She graduated in biology and minored in environmental studies. And that's where her story goes. She started a study. We're going to talk about this. But we learned last week or we saw last week that Crowley Park kind of changed. Crowley Park and lacrosse, the playground, changed from that like tire turf that 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 cut up tires and and astroturf or whatever i guess with astrodome i'm going way back to the 80s like the, the just the turf field they they removed that because it's not exactly all that healthy uh and and we we learned that through a study that grace started and there's been other studies about this too i've since learned uh reading about some of this stuff uh but yeah she started the study a couple of years ago at uw lacrosse and and now uh crowley park is is no longer going to have any of this uh this they've, they've changed over and there's a couple other parks here and we've kind of learned that this tire turf isn't all that great for kids uh they 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 get it on their skin they, they ingest it it's also just kind of gross and dirty anyway so uh converting these parks maybe back to grass should we just go back to grass but uh to uh, to wood chips 
other than this this tire crap that we're putting in parks now um is is kind of a good idea so anyway those are the two interviews i have in, have coming up grace cook a uw lacrosse graduate who's going for her master's at boston university and laura godden the archivist at uw lacrosse's murphy Real library they're they're coming up after this All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk. I'm Rick Solom, and on the phone with me now is Grace Cook. She is a UWL graduate in biology. She minored in environmental studies, but she's going to Boston University now, so she's calling from Boston, and she got her, she's getting her master's in public health. But the reason I brought her on, those are her accolades. Uh, the reason I brought her on is she's kind of, if you heard this story, Crowley Park, which is used by Emerson Elementary, Elementary School for their park, they converted from... I guess, tire chips to wood chips, just because we, we kind of figured out that these tire chips aren't all the greatest for us or for our kids, I suppose. And that all kind of started with, with Grace in, in, a, in a project she did at UW Lacrosse. Is that, is that kind of a, a good summation, Grace? Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, see how far this has come already. And I'm definitely happy to be here and talk you through kind of our thought behind the whole project. Yeah, so this what's funny is I did I kind of break the news to you that your little project, quote unquote little, I'm not trying to be little or anything, but your project has led to a thing where the city has converted a park because of what you studied and nobody told you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, you definitely broke the news to me. I didn't realize it was this big. When I was there, I was working with the school districts trying to help them convert. And um, I actually got the playground that's at UWL to switch their rubber chips to wood chips. Do you guys, you college students, use the playground a lot? Do you like the slide, or what do you guys like? <laughs> no, those are like for the professor's kids. Yeah, right. Okay, so so we learned, I guess, because of this, we learned a little bit. I've been I've been reading about this in in the past, and I didn't quite understand it. I was like, yeah, I can I can kind of see it, but is it really? So the tire chips, or like the tire. Even like the turf at UW Lacrosse, at Northside Elementary, there's turf, but inside that turf is like tire chips. That's not great for kids. And in my head, I was thinking, well, that's why, because they fall on the ground and then they get it in their mouth and eat it. Or is it is it something different than that? Can you explain like how this started and then just why these tire chips aren't great? Yeah, let me walk you through a little bit of background. So I started helping with this rubber chips removal initiative. Um, yeah, as my capstone project. Um and I remember when I actually first started telling, I told my roommates about this project. They both are child care workers in lacrosse. And they immediately started telling me about how dirty kids get after playing in the chips. And if you go out there and grab a handful, your, your hands come out all full of this black dust. Mm -hmm. And like kids are gross. If you ever work with kids and they, they pick them up, they put them in their mouths. And so I just knew when they said that, that this was going to be an important project. Um, so my role was starting to just do like the initial research on rubber chips. And it's interesting because there really isn't that much research because rubber chips aren't really a consumer product that like the EPA would test. So, so Grace, um, pause for a second here. Did you start this just because kids are gross, as I quote you? <laughs> As opposed I was to, a daycare teacher for six years, and yes, kids are gross. Yeah, so so it's <laughs> but, just like they get dirty, and or or were you thinking in your back of your head the kids covered in this rubber, which is you know like just in general not healthy for us, is is yeah. probably not healthy for us. Is that in the back of your head? Was that kind of the like getting the ball rolling? Yeah. So this this field of research is called environmental health, and so it's really like a study of how humans interact with their environments, and so something like rubber chips 
where you're it's about exposure and being covered in these chemicals. So that's kind of where my brain connected the playgrounds with my environmental study side of things. Okay, so you start thinking that and then you start researching to see whether or not that is actually going to be a negative health yeah. effect for kids or for anyone. Yes, because if I'm going to propose to the school district, let's take out all of these playgrounds. Um, you have to have like some, you know, research to back that up. So yeah, I started looking into it and tires. So that's what rubber chips are. They're recycled tires, yeah. ground up tires. And so they are well known to contain unsafe levels of chemicals like polyaromatic hydrocarbons, lead oxide, zinc oxides. Um, those are the main ones. And in this type of ground up state on playgrounds, they can leach the chemicals into the environment. So that can be like the physical environment or sometimes on really hot days, you, it'll smell really bad on the rubber playground. And that's called off gassing. Um, when it heats up the rubber, those chemicals also go into the air. Okay. So when we talk about recycled tires being part of playgrounds, is it just the tire itself? If we, if we took brand new tires and, and cut them up, or is it like that over the lifespan of a tire driving, what, 60,000 miles down a highway or however far a tire goes? Is it also like what that tire absorbs throughout its life? And then we're throwing, you know, not just what the tire is made of and all those chemicals, but also everything else that it's been co coming into contact through with uh, all those miles? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a little bit of both. So the chemicals that we know are the ones that are in rubber. Yeah. how you make tires. But also, yeah, a lot harder to study would be the chemicals that tires pick up. But, yeah, that's definitely a thing. So lead and zinc specifically are what this new study at UWL looks at. And those are particularly harmful toxins, especially for kids. Okay. So you, you have this assumption, then you go and research it and figure it out and like, oh, yeah, these tires, not great, not great for kids. So what happens after that? Yeah, after that. Graduate and go to Boston. So <laughs> you graduate Capstone, and you go to Boston, yeah. Capstone project over. <laughs> no, yeah, like I said, like kids, they're exposed a lot of different ways through their mouth. You breathe it in, gas, dust. So what's really cool is that UWL is able to do this kind of very basic toxicology testing. So they actually took rubber chips from um, Emerson, uh, Crowley Park, yep. um, and they were able to test them to um, see what kind of chemicals are actually in the tires. And they did find levels of, I believe, both lead and zinc that were just at the EPA's standards or way above the EPA standards. It really depends how you test it. But I think it's really cool that they were able to actually test local rubber chip levels. Now, did you get your safety goggles on and your beaker Bunsen burner and everything? <laughs> did you help do these tests? No, unfortunately, I would have loved to do that. But I think um, I think it's Professor Christopher Rolfus. He's a um, environmental chemistry professor at UWL. Okay, and his lab is able to do this. Okay, so they got to do the like kind of the fun stuff while you do all the uh, the, the like gathering and. So when, when kids are exposed to this stuff, is that is that like an immediate effect? Do we know, are they ingesting it? Are they, is it absorbed through their skin? Why is it so bad for kids? Is it long-term, short-term? Right. This is, this is where any kind of toxicology testing gets complicated because with chemical exposure, it's really about um, the dose of exposure and the duration of exposure. So kids in particular are very hyper- sensitive to any kind of chemical exposures um, just because 
I like to say kids are not just many adults. Their, their bodies work differently and exposures impact them much more. Um, and especially with these kids who are um, on the playground, so they're chronically exposed every day. And then to more, like we're, adults aren't going to be putting rubber into their mouths. Mm-hmm. But kids, you know, it's just the level of exposure is a lot more extreme for kids and how their body can metabolize that exposure is a lot different. You're giving credit to a lot of adults there. I mean, <laughs> I did. <laughs> some adults won't put these in their mouths. So, yeah, so they're, they're exposed to that. Okay. And then I guess what do we do then? Go to worst case scenario when it comes to this exposure? No, in public health, they definitely teach you not to do that. <laughs> it's more like just knowing that this is an exposure. And I think one of the most important things is to, to remember is that no one person is exposed to only one type of chemical exposure. So like you've got chemicals from air pollution, everyday environmental pollution. I mean, French Island had crazy PFAS levels when I was living there. So still does. You can't even say that again. I said still does. We haven't done anything about that yet. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's important to remember that. And it's hard to test these, you know, what is the real impact on health exclusively. But I think for this project in particular, it's it's really a cool opportunity to decrease in exposure um, where we actually have the power over it versus, you know, something in the air where we don't. Okay, so to sum to sum up what you just said, I think you said we're exposed to all kinds of different chemicals. Good, good, you know, bad chemicals, whatever, whatever, good and bad. I don't know if there's good chemicals. Mm-hmm. We're exposed to whole, all kinds of different things in different ways. So there's no way to pinpoint the exposure to rubber tires on playgrounds or, or rubber tire chips on playgrounds being the cause of something. But since it is, isn't a positive exposure and we can get rid of it, then we should do it because like there's no, mm-hmm. it's unnecessary, right? We don't need to have kids playing on rubber tire playgrounds when there's healthier or maybe safer options? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you just go out there yourself, like when you smell how how bad it is, how hot it is on those really warm days, like just that basic exposure isn't great. I'm not, you can't like say this tire exposure led to X disease. You know, it's not to that level yet because mm-hmm. th- that requires really extensive testing yep. but it is just not a good thing to be exposed to also it's like 100 degrees this week is is the temperatures when it gets really hot like this does it do is it doing more harm to kids or are you just talking smell it just smells bad no yeah it's definitely heightened in those extreme temperatures and i i think our team actually like went out and tested how hot it gets on the rubber chips mm-hmm. i mean that's a, that's a separate from the toxicology too is just being on a playground surface that that's that is that hot can lead to um skin burns just and also really bad for the environment to have such a heat sink there yeah i was i was reading that on a 95 degree day crowley parks rubber chip it doesn't have rubber chips anymore but the temperature of those chips was between 140 and 150 degrees in the sun and on 95 degrees near grass and wood chip. So, so wow, the temperature yeah. was definitely way, way less <laughs> or way higher, like on those, on those chips. So results kind of show that, you know, like we, like this is something in our environment we could change, but you, I think you said you, you had like five important things to remember as a result of this. Yeah. I kind of went through a, a bit of them, but 
The first being that tires were never manufactured to be in contact with children or people in general. Yeah. So that's why it's not something that's really tested um, like you would get like a food product that the EPA tests. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So just in general, tires aren't meant to be in contact with people. Um, And then two, it's important to remember the amount of exposure, um, how kids are being exposed and for how long. Um, So we found those um, levels of zinc and lead in the chips. And we, so we know that they're there. It just really is important to know how kids are being exposed. Um, Also, the kids are not little adults thing. Um, Their bodies work differently. Oh, sure. And that exposures to them is, is a lot more severe than it would be to an adult. Um, And then, yeah, no one child is exposed to only one toxin. So it's just controlling something that we actually can make a difference on. And, and Grace has helped with her study. She kind of started this study into these uh, tire chips, and she's helped get UW Lacrosse and now Crowley Park in the city kind of converted over to wood chips, which I guess are, are, are going to be much safer. I wonder if the wood chips would be like stained with anything so that they would last longer if they're just straight up wood, you know? Like that'll be your next study, Grace, when you come back to Lacrosse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to do a little bit of research into like alternative playground materials and overwhelming, overwhelmingly wood chips was the safest option because a lot of other ones are also rubber alternative. Um, but I do think they probably treat them with something, but overall I found that was the best alternative. Well, the treatment too, they know literally that they're going on playgrounds. So they're probably thinking ahead a little bit, probably right. like, eh. So and and then you were, you were telling me off the air that Northside, Hamilton, State Road Elementary, Hinchin, and Spence all still have these rubberized playgrounds. So the city's budgeted about hundred grand to convert some of these. We we won't. I, I'm not sure which ones or if any more will get converted. But it's pretty cool that a that a study that in your experience working with kids and your roommates working with kids, the idea that these tires might not be great for kids to play on in the playground. And here, look at this. You you've you've now had two parks converted away from this. Because of what you did, congrats, Grace. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that is really awesome. I I didn't think I'd be calling you in a few years to talk about this, but that's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. What year did you do? Did you start this study? That was my senior year, which was twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Okay. Well, interesting time in in in, in that era of <laughs> going to school yeah, and having your senior year. Tough but, time to be a student. <laughs> uh, that's Grace Cook. She is a UWL graduate, and she's now headed to. Well, she's at Boston University. She's in Boston right now, calling from us, getting working on her master's in public health. Congrats, Grace. Good luck with the getting your master's, and thanks for calling. Thank you so much. All right, we'll be back after this. All right, welcome back. I am Rick Solom, and in studio with me here is Laura Godden. She is an archivist at UW Lacrosse, and we want to talk about this. I want to pick your brain about the War Eagle Steamboat. Is that how I'm? That's how I'd refer to it. As the Lacrosse Center board is considering putting a War Eagle mural on the side of the Lacrosse Center, they're going to vote on this again next month. They put it off for a month to to study it, which we do always in committees. So, so I wanted to get a little bit of you're a you're a steamboat aficionado. Is that this is your thing? This is one of your favorite things to talk about? Steamboats. Yeah, that is an excellent term. I'd say that uh, Murphy Library is known worldwide um, for its collection of steamboat photographs, and so I sort of became an accidental steamboat expert. Oh, really? But I've been working there now for twelve years or so, and so over those twelve years, I have learned a whole 
plethora about steamboats. Is this like when you first taste beer and it tastes awful, and then eventually you, what is it, acquired? It's an acquired taste? Do you have an acquired taste for steamboats because you're just, you're in the steamboat capital of libraries? Uh, They did warn me during the job interview. They're like, how do you feel about steamboats? And I said that I didn't have any strong opinions one way or the other, that they're, you know, a neat thing from history. And it's one of the few things that still goes up and down the river, even though it's been hundreds of years. And uh, I said, I'd be willing to learn about them. And and I've learned a lot. (laughs) Kind of the main reason I brought you on too was that, I saw in the comments, so I'm just I'm I'm doing the show by comp fit by social media comments that somebody said, should we really put the mural of the War Eagle on the Lacrosse Center? This thing, an accident essentially, is what sank it, or a human error, or something just goofy sank it. So we'll get to that in a minute. But what is okay? So we know the War Eagle is a steamboat, and I know this much: it was built in 1954, 1854, or 1854. Yeah, 1954. It'd have been like a GTO or something. Built in 1854, and then. It sank 16 years later, and we get into that in a minute, but why was it built? Well, it, it was built in Ohio by a company called Minnesota and bought by some brothers in the cross, so that's always kind of funny, funny way to do that, too, but it's just a, a passenger hauling ship, or it's not even a ship, it's a boat, right? Yep, yep, just like uh, most of the steamboats at the time, it was built to haul passengers and freight up and down the river and do it quickly, efficiently, and hopefully safely. But as the case with most steamboats, they weren't always the safest vessels because they were made of wood and there are a lot of hazards in the river. And if you wonder today um, why steamboats don't sink, it's because now there are requirements saying that they have to have metal hulls, and that has improved the safety quite a bit. So, what, a lot of guys like flicking cigarettes on the, sh- on the base of the boat and then it starts on fire? Yeah, more and more pipe smokers. Uh, uh, the boilers would explode. Sometimes they get, just get caught on a snag in the river or something under the, the water that the, the, the captain and the pilot couldn't see. And you also have to keep in mind that there wasn't a lock and dam system back then, so the river was a lot more unpredictable and a lot more shallow in spots. And so hitting rocks and trees um, happened at a higher frequency. And not only that, but they're also full of disease because um, people were really big into spittoons, and um, those turned out to be uh, spreaders of tuberculosis. So sometimes there'd be a horrible sickness that went across the whole boat or food poisoning, which isn't, I guess, too undifferent from cruise ships today. (laughs) So how long are people on this steamboat? Like, what are we... What are we doing? Is it kind of like a steamboat now? We're taking it and it's fun to go up and down the river? Just depending on the person themselves. Someone like Mark Twain rode the steamboat all the way up and down the river for the experience. Um, sometimes there are immigrants traveling um, to settle in a new place and they take it all the way from New Orleans to Minneapolis. And um, like on the case of the War Eagle, there was a young woman on there and she was just going to visit um, relatives in Fountain City. So she was taking a one-day trip just to just to see someone north of here. I suppose we didn't have like better transport this was the trans the best transportation and kind of scenic i guess but we didn't know any better yeah 1870s Um, no cars there was a railroad but it only went to certain places and wisconsin was so thick with trees that traveling across the land was very difficult all right so and we're we're talking about the war eagle steamboat because the lacrosse center wants to put a or they're talking about putting a mural of it on the side of the building and laura godden is our steamboat aficionado so this oh the there's some history with the war eagle per, per se right in terms of the civil war there's some pretty interesting history here and which is why maybe we talk about the war eagle more than other steamboats yeah, so after the War Eagle was sold to the Davidson brothers in La Crosse, the Civil War broke out, and it transported troops from Fort Snelling in, in Minnesota all the way from St. Paul down to La Crosse. 
and lacrosse the troops got on the railroad and went to the rest of the way to Washington, D.C. And then later it was also in service um, down in Tennessee where it was actually shot at and then it, it got a bullet hole through one of its smokestacks. So it's only got one bullet hole. That's what I'm taking from this. So it's shot at, but not very accurately, apparently. Yeah, that's, that's what I read in the, the source, that it was one bullet hole. But if you make think about Civil War guns and how long it takes to reload them, I guess one bullet hole would make sense. And we're just shooting at a ship. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to get into it because now I'm just thinking about people getting shot at on a ship while they're down, going up and down the river. But this thing being part of the Civil War, all this history, but the, none of that has anything to do with why it sank, right? Like, we got to get to the, the good stuff here or, or the sad stuff. The, this thing sank 16 years after it was built. Yeah, so it didn't sink until 1870, so long after the Civil War. And at that point, it was just transpo- transporting passengers and freight again. And some of the freight that was in it um, was in a, a wooden barrel. And it was called Danforce Non-Explosive Petroleum Fluid. And the barrel was leaking, and so the captain called the carpenter or cooper down to fix it. And there are three different stories about what possibly happened. Uh, But the long story short is that somehow some of that leaking non-explosive petroleum fluid got in contact with the lantern that the, the cooper was using to fix the barrel and started a huge fire because even though it was non-explosive, it turned out to be very, very flammable. Yeah, flammable, non-explosive. They kind of jinxed yeah. the guy working there. Also, maybe don't put a lantern next to something that's, I mean, would he, what would he have not known it was flammable? Yeah. So his story was that... Yeah, you said long story short, we had three stories, but I want to hear the three stories because one of them's got to be ridiculous. So the carpenter's story was that he put the lantern on top of the barrel, and when he was fixing uh, the metal metal hoop that binds the barrel together, the metal hoop hoop broke, and the lantern just dropped right into this this petroleum fluid. And that was, it was used for lamps, for, for kerosene lamps, so you could see how it would be flammable. Um, the other story was that, that he hit it with his hammer and started on fire. And then the third story is that sparks from the hammer hitting the metal hoop started the thing on fire. Oh, story two and three sound the same. Like yeah. he hit it with a hammer, sparks. Yeah, well, I guess the, you know you might not the, see sparks coming. That seems less neg- negligent, I think, than hitting it directly with a hammer. Um, they tried to get the barrel off as quickly as possible, and they pushed it. They tried to push it in the water, but unfortunately, there was another barge parked right next to the War Eagle because it was parked in the dock um, just north of uh, Riverside Park. And so then the, the 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 flaming barrel just went on this barge and started that on fire and made kind of made the situation worse in some ways we yeah we buried the lead here the 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 stupid war eagle fire burned another barge so we've burned two ships yeah and it both sink burned a barge it burned the the war eagle boat itself um there are two other ships that were parked nearby but they were able to to get their engines fired up and back away but it also burned the dock the railroad depot a grain elevator a warehouse a passenger train and a bunch of cars um, they say it did a quarter million dollars worth of damage, so today it'd be like six million dollars. But the only good news is, is that it happened at night, and so a lot of people had already disembarked into the city um, to visit or stay maybe at a hotel or whatever, and that there was actually less traffic there than normal. Um, and so it could have been way worse, but it was already um, what was known as the worst fire in Wisconsin's history at that point in time because it took place before. Uh, one year before the Peshtigo fire. 
Not a lot of great cell phone videos of this either. It's very grainy videos. <laughs> Are there any pictures of, of the thing like burnt or anything like that? Like the aftermath of this? No pictures of it burnt, but in 1931, the water level in the river got really low. And so it exposed part of the boat. And I think there's some, some pictures from that, but we don't have those in our collection, unfortunately. Yeah, so we and and most interesting here maybe is where this thing is because I I read the story and it was still underwater, but then I I was like where underwater? So you said it was north of Riverside Park. So but did they when it started on fire? Did they try to drive it a dr- captain it away? I don't know how you say drive a boat. Yeah, but it was too late. It was already engulfed in flames, and I guess it happened very quickly. There was passengers sleeping on board. They had to run out in their pajamas or naked, and they jumped jumped in the water. Um, and that actually created um, more problems because most of the deaths that occurred, like five or six people died. They're not real sure how many. Um, but they, they died by drowning because it was less common for people then to know how to swim. Oh, really? So we didn't, we're on a ship that we have to use all the time to, uh, to transport ourselves around, and also we don't know how to swim. So uh, the, the landmarks up and down the, the Mississippi and lacrosse are kind of funny. So did it burn by the old KFC or... Um, do you know exactly? Do we know? Yeah, exactly? so it was further south than that. So it's kind of where the old um, petroleum used to mobile petro- oil site, mobile oil we site call used that to River be. River Point District. River Point District. Yeah, and they were calling it Riverside North. Um, but there is a a plaque in Riverside Park itself, um, not far from the Fish Hatchery Building, that talks about it and kind of point, pinpoints its its location. Um, what commonly happened when a boat like this sank is immediately they tried to salvage it. And they, if they could, they'd t- get it out of the water and rebuild it. But this one was so badly damaged that they weren't able to do that. But they salvaged everything they could off the boat. Um, and then what they actually probably did was they tried to move it out of the way. And so they might have dynamited it or pushed it further into the water. So it's about under 30 feet of water right now mm-hmm. um, just because they didn't want other steamboats hitting it and then also cr- creating more catastrophes. Um, and yeah, and then they just let it sit there. Um, and in, like I said, in 1931, the, wa- the water was low. And so people went out there and collected different trinkets and things off it. Um, and then in the seventies and eighties, there was a, um, sc- local scuba diver, um, named Dennis, um, Brandt, I think. Um, and he dove down there and collected a whole bunch of artifacts to him. And because of him, he donated these to the Cross County Historical Society and so La Crosse County Historical Society has like 700 different artifacts from the boat, which is a huge time capsule, like probably more than any other boat of this kind. And it just purpose, perfectly captures, you know, what life was like in the Midwest in 1870. So we went 100 years without going, you know what, somebody should dive down there and grab this stuff. I, I get when the water's low, we could do it because then it, that's crazy, though. It seems like... it's just really muddy and hard to see, so people weren't able to, and oh, they didn't have the scuba equipment, and then someone had to remember it was there. But anytime the water was low, people did try to go out there and find trinkets from it. All right, Laura Godden is an archivist at EW Lacrosse. Uh, she works in the library. She's got all kinds of uh, knowledge on on lacrosse history. So the big question is: is is there a better thing to put on the side of the lacrosse center than this? Uh, this War Eagle steamboat that kind of perished in a in a goofy way, not only burning itself into the Mississippi River, but a whole bunch of other things, right? Like it's the, the accident's kind of like a dumbfounding. Like maybe we should have something else up there to represent lacrosse. Um, I think, as far as steamboats are concerned, it's probably the best choice. Um, it recently got added to the National Register of Historic Places, um, in part because there are so many surviving artifacts from it. 
Um, it's the only Wisconsin um, river shipwreck that's, in, that's on the National Register of Historic Places because um, there are some Great Lake wrecks, but not, not, not any from the river. So that makes it very unique. And also, it was more, you know, before it burnt to the ground or burnt into the river, I should say, um, it was um, the pride of the fleet. It was one of the fastest um, boats. Um, it had the nick- nickname of being the president boat because the, a former president, um, Millard uh, Fillmore, rode on it. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of cool things about it. And it was, it was built to be a very fine, fancy um, uh, boat for, for people to, 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 to transport on. Um, so it wasn't just about the fire. And then the fire itself was very devastating, and some people did lose their lives. Um, but I think it is a good way to kind of commemorate those people and the people that tried to save others um, on that boat. Um, there was a, a black barber on, on the boat named um, Felix Spilner, and he died trying to save um, an 18-year-old lady from drowning. Unfortunately, both ended up dying, but he basically gave his life to try to save her. Um, so that'd be a nice way to, to commemorate that. Um, as far as other history is concerned, there's so much lacrosse history that it's a really hard question to answer. Um, and so people wanted to start, you know, going into uh, the history of lacrosse. You know, maybe uh, something good to put on a mural would be the founding of the first professional fire department in lacrosse in 1896 because it prevented um, tragedies like this from getting totally out of can because when this boat burnt to the ground, um, there was only a small volunteer fire force. And if they had a professional fire department, it might have been less tragic. Okay. The, the Murphy <laughs> Library, when you, you said this earlier, when you got hired, they were like, you need to be a steamboat you know, savvy. So this all sounds like steamboat propaganda. You gave all these reasons to have this mural, but not a whole lot of reasons to not have this mural or, or better things. I mean, we, we don't need a granddad bluff mural on the side of the lacrosse center because we can see the so granddad bluff, yeah. right? Like we could just go look at it. But yeah, the, another a different piece of history. I just I'm not a, I'm not into it, lacrosse history that much, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, well, it's already on like a lot of our street signs and some of our bike racks, and it's it's something that the area tries to embrace already. I know a lot of people are really bummed when the the other War Eagle mural um, came down, um, and people miss it. And um, and it's just something this area is known for being on the river. Um, you know, it's not like you go to a you know, a place in the middle of Stevens Point, or maybe, well, I guess they have rivers up there, but it's not like, I don't call it any town, but it's not like every town can claim steamboats. Um, and so it's a really cool part of our history. Um, and then well, plus our, our library is known worldwide for our massive steamboat photograph collection. So And it's part of our present too as well, right? Like, yep. I mean, it's now these things are still going up and down the river. Still you know, a huge more part of tourism, our tourism, but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they, uh, I know the La Crosse County Historical Society, when, when steamboats come and dock in the area, they go out there all dressed up in period clothes and clothing right. and, and, and greet, greet the steamboats. So, yeah, it's still an important part. And our, we have a beautiful levee, and so I guess it's just a, a way to remember and commemorate that, too. That's Laura Godden. She's a UW La Crosse archivist at the Murphy Library. Thanks, Laura. No problem. All right, we'll be back. All right, that's going to wrap it up for a Thursday of Lacrosse Talk PM. Thanks again to Laura Godden, archivist at UW Lacrosse, and Grace Cook, a UW Lacrosse graduate, and uh, she just did this study about Cowley Park and how that tire crap isn't good for kids, and we're now transitioning parks. Broker the news, which was kind of funny. 
All right, coming up tomorrow, as he is on most Fridays, UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Chergosky. We'll see what kind of trouble we can get in with him tomorrow. Thanks, everybody, for listening.